Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night, and we just ask that you would take our time of the study of your word and guide us through. And Lord, encourage us and strengthen us that we may continue to serve thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need a copy of the outline, uh, wave your hand there, and we'll try to have Peter get you one. Uh, we are working through the Gospels. Um, I guess this could be called a harmony of the Gospels. Uh, as we are going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we do not believe that there are contradictions in the Scriptures. And where we're going to start is uh, Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. Uh, I'd like for us to look at uh, both of these passages here. And um, Matthew tells the story just a little bit differently than Luke does. And yet we will read here and find out that things are basically uh, the same. And so let's... Uh, look here at Matthew chapter 8, and we'll start in, in verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lieth homesick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that follow, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel." And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self same hour. Now, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to look at verse 1 through 10 here. It says, Then came together, then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they, well, wait a minute, what, I'm in Mark. Oh, sorry, forgive me. Uh, Luke chapter 7, I knew something looked funny there. There we go. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, 
Trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am also a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Now, how many of you immediately see the difference between the two stories? Matthew tells the story as if Jesus spoke directly to the centurion, and the centurion had come and directly approached Jesus. Luke tells the same story, and he tells it as the centurion had sent people, the elders of the Jews and the Pharisees, to come and beseech Jesus, and then he sends other friends to Jesus and never physically appears for Jesus before Jesus. Uh, two things ought to come out of this story. Number one, the term great faith. Let's not allow the details to distract us from the important part of the story. Number one, uh, this man demonstrated great faith. Only one other time in all the scripture did Jesus use the term great faith in reference to a person. Uh, and neither time were they Jewish people. Here was a Roman centurion, the other was a Syrophoenician woman. And we'll get to her story in, in due time as we go through the events. Um, one of the commentators put a note in here, and it makes good sense and, and synthesizes the two. Uh, when you send someone to speak for you, it is basically counted as you were speaking for yourself. You can give someone a power of attorney. They appear before you in a court of law. And in the court of law, it is legally you that appeared because you gave that person the authority to appear in your presence. Everybody follow that? And so no matter where we go in this story, it's not the faith of the Pharisees or the people who represented the centurion. It's his faith. And uh, so, I, I, you know, again, we're not going to argue with the scripture. Now, the other alternative is to make this into two completely separate stories. Uh, the only problem I have with that, the term great faith is used so rarely in the Bible. I don't think you can do that. Uh, I believe that it's the same story. It's one man's uh, reference and uh, uh, Matthew tells the story as if Jesus were speaking to the centurion because it was the centurion's faith that was represented in the story. Luke gives us a little different view of the same event. And what is emphasized in, this, in Luke's rendering is the humility of this Gentile soldier. He would, in modern day, he would be a captain. He would be in charge 
of a hundred soldiers. Um, uh, we would say a division leader or a battalion leader. Uh, that is a very high position. And so here we have this man. Luke tells us that he actually built a synagogue for the Jewish people. He was a friend to the Jewish people, yet he himself could not become a Jew without jeopardizing his life as a Roman soldier. He had to, and Jesus recognized that faith and pronounced it great. Interesting, Jesus, as he did with the nobleman, healed from a distance. He did not approach the person who was sick. He spoke the word and they found out that the servant had been healed. And the reference here is the servant that was healed was a Jewish man serving the centurion. And so uh, an interesting story. And, you know, uh, there are just some things God puts in the Scripture so that your faith will be directed to the right place. The Bible was never intended to be a mechanical puzzle where all the pieces fit together perfectly and you comprehend everything is in the Bible and it makes perfect sense. God never put his word together that way. My answer to this thing is, Matthew saw one thing, Luke in his research got the rest of the story. Matthew was reporting what he saw. Luke was reporting the details to the story. And if you have a problem with it, your problem isn't with the details of the story. Your problem is with the Holy Spirit's rendering of the stories. And that's where we have to back up. You know, they accuse us so often of what is called blind faith. Right? Well, my faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith is not blind because Jesus opened blind eyes. Amen? He healed the lame. He healed the sick. He did all these wonderful things. I frankly am not going to worry about it. But I bring it up so that you will know that there are some differences here. And if someone comes and says... Well, you see there, there's differences in this story. Uh, There's conflicts in the scripture. Uh, Excuse me, there's no conflict in the scripture. And I'm not going to, nor is any human being able to answer every question you might have. But that these stories are identical stories and the chief actors in the story are the same people, i.e. the centurion, the sick servant, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the essentials of the story, great faith exercised by the centurion in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ answering that faith by healing the servant. So I hope that doesn't shake you. It shouldn't. Uh, Where are... Faith needs to be, and oftentimes when people, uh, the way I like to refer to it, nitpick. How many people know what a nitpicker is? 
How many people know what a nit really is? I saw one hand go up. How many of you know what a nit is? It's a lice egg. You have those fine combs, and that's what they call nitpickers, is you're sitting there looking for the most infantile, fine, you, have, you have to have a magnifying glass to see those things. And there are people that will miss heaven because they're too busy looking for the nits, which there are none in God's word. Amen? And so, if someone brings something like this up to you, the simplest way to answer it is, excuse me, your problems are not with the text. You've, you've got bigger problems. Uh, you're refusing to just see the import of the story. And in Matthew, G, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, listen, they're going to come from the east and the west. The Gentiles are going to enter the kingdom and you Jews are going to be shut out of it. Jesus was not being anti-Semitic in that statement. Jesus was inspecting faith. There was no faith on the part of the Pharisees that had come to him. And by the way, if only the centurion was there, why would Jesus have even made that statement? Because the disciples are in the kingdom. There had to be some other people there who were going to miss the kingdom. And so we have collusion between the two stories, uh, agreement, I should say, and um, again, the thing that we need to get from this story is this centurion, one of only two people in all the scripture that Jesus attributed having great faith. Why was his faith great? Because he didn't think Jesus had to come and be there at the spot. He said, Jesus... All you have to do is speak the word. You are under authority and your authority includes the healing of people who are near death. That's faith in more than a man. Amen? Now the next story that happens and we'll just since we're in Luke let's just stay there and follow on in the in the book of Luke and it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and much people now how many of you know the story of the widow's son at Nain and uh, this is just a little tiny village in Galilee in the foothills of Galilee as Jesus was walking around now Imagine the group that was with Jesus. I just love the pictures that are in Scripture. When they were following Jesus, what was Jesus doing? He made the blind to see, the sick well, the lame to walk. He was teaching them things from God's Word. Were they a sad sack crowd boo, boo, following Jesus? No, there was joy and happiness with the people that followed Jesus. Well, as this group that is following Jesus through the hillsides of Galilee are expressing their joy and, and their amazement at Jesus and who he is, they meet a funeral procession. Now, these people are weeping and wailing. 
Now, if there was one thing that the Jewish people believed in, it was the expression of emotion. I mean, that is just a cultural thing. Read through your Old Testament. Um, When Saul and Jonathan were killed, what did David do? He rent his garment and he wept and he uh, wrote this psalm praising David and I mean Jonathan and Saul as the great king and leaders of Israel. And when a guy showed up and said, "I killed Saul, uh, here's the rewards," David put him to death. I mean, there there was great expression. I mean, the if you wanted to really honor somebody at a funeral. What you did is you screamed louder than anybody else. Now, aren't you glad we don't have funerals like that? I mean, if you want to honor someone at a funeral, you don't make a scene in America. Uh, You're there, you comfort them, maybe take people out to dinner after the funeral or whatever you can speak words of comfort. Just being there is one of the best things, but quiet is the standard in, in, a, in an American funeral. Hebrew funeral, the louder the, we, the mourners were. In fact, they had professional mourners. And if you really wanted to show your honor for the dead, you hired the biggest and the loudest ones you could so that the whole town knew that they really cared about this person. And the precedent is in the Bible. Read the story of Jacob's death. Uh, the Canaanites are all sitting there looking. They said, this grievous, this mourning is especially grievous for the Egyptians. The, the Egyptians were following suit and making this great big ordeal over Jacob's death. So imagine the two parties weeping and wailing and making all kinds of noise and the other group probably much larger following Jesus expressing joy and praising God and listening to Jesus as he teaches. And so you've got the mourners and the rejoicers. And then Jesus does something absolutely against all cultural norms. He walks up to the woman and says, weep not. Do you know what kind of an insult that was? This was her son's funeral. He said, weep not. And then a complete stranger touches the buyer as they're carrying him out. Now, I believe at that moment the boy came to life because death is unclean. Jesus could not be made unclean. If you or I were to touch that buyer, we would be unclean for seven days. And we would have to take a bath and be sprinkled with the water of separation on the third and seventh day, according to the Old Testament law. How many of you remember all that? Uh Uh-oh. Okay, okay, we have more than one hand. That's good. But, I mean, it was quite an imposition And for Jesus to actually touch the buyer and stop the entire funeral procession. But the next thing everybody knows, the boy's alive. And Jesus delivers 
the boy that was dead alive to his mother. Now everybody's rejoicing. I, I just love the stories in the Bible. I wish we had time to go through all of them uh, word for word and, and things like this. But here was what they said. Look down with me, verse 17 of Luke. Um, verse 16, I'm sorry. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, This is a great prophet, that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and through all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. And we get to the next part of the story and we're just following the chronology here. This is also going to be recorded in Matthew chapter 11. Now you'll notice we made quite a jump. We started out in Matthew chapter 8 with the story of the centurion. And uh, we've already been upwards into Matthew chapter 12 as we're following the story. It seems of all of the The groups, everybody likes to pick on John and say he is the non-synoptic gospel. He's the guy that's out of sync with everybody. Uh, But I'll tell you what, it seems in in my study anyway that Matthew is a little more out of sync than John was. Uh, John just didn't record a lot of events that happened, but Luke and Mark keep a fairly, fairly good record here, but we're still... In Mark chapter 3. We haven't even finished Mark chapter 3 yet. We're already over a year into Jesus' ministry of three years. When we get to John chapter 12, we're going to be dealing with the last week. That's why I'm breaking this up the way I am the first year of Jesus' ministry. Was teaching through Galilee until he called his 12 disciples, he named them apostles. The next year is going to be basically the training. Next two years is going to be the training of these apostles. And uh, so as we put the pieces of the story together, we get quite a narrative here. We have the centurion servant healed. We have the widow's son at Nain raised. And apparently... Some of John's disciples that had not become Jesus' disciples went back to John in prison, who was all the way down in the southern part of Galilee in Herod's prison, and told him, and then we have John sending these disciples back to Jesus with a question. Are you really the Messiah? Or are we looking for another? Now, to me, that's an amazing question. Because John had seen the evidence at Jesus' baptism. And he had already given testimony. This is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This shows us a couple of things. Number one, not even the prophets themselves understood everything that God was doing. Amen? Number two, it shows us that John the Baptist 
was a man. How would you like to live your entire life for this special God-ordained ministry? Live in the wilderness having direct communion with God and getting prepared for your, your message and then being on the stage less than a year, locked in prison. He had been in prison six or eight months now. You know what John did in prison? Every once in a while, we'll read the rest of the story as the Bible will backfill us in. Herod would sneak down and say, John, anything to say? Yeah, you're a wicked sinner, Herod. (laughs) I haven't changed my opinion. It said he heard him gladly and did many things. But that was all John had to do. John is used as an example here to teach us one thing. God doesn't always do things the way you want him to do things. But you still believe in God. Amen. Jesus told the disciples, he said, uh, of John, he said, look at the record. Look at what is being done. And go back and tell John all the things that I've done and also... Tell him, blessed is he who's not offended in me. Don't get upset because God doesn't do things the way you want him to. That's human. Uh, By the way, that's the root of all idolatry, is it not? It is demanding God to work your way. I love the story Brother Clayton tells. He was out in one of the little villages in the bush in the Philippines. And he said there was this big noise down at the end of the village. And here was this Filipino woman with a little statue. And she was picking that thing up and she threw it down into the ashes of the fire and she kicked it and she spit on it and she got a stick and started whacking it and cursed at it. And so he was watching this whole thing and then pretty soon it says, he said she picked it up and she began to clean it off and she began to kiss it and hug it and took it back inside the hut. And Brother Clayton said, what in the world was that all about? He said, well... He said, the best I can, the the pastor that was in the village there said, the best I can understand was that her God didn't do what she wanted him to. So she was punishing her God. And then she told him that she really loved him and if he would do better in the future, she would give him many gifts and take care of him. Now, you know what? We laugh at that. But how many people say, Oh, God, you did something really good for me. I'll be in church on Sunday no matter what. Sounds like the same thing to me. How about you? God, I don't like what you're doing. I'm going to stop going to church. I'm just going to give up. I mean, how many people have said that? Uh, You know what? People are the same. So is God. Don't give up your faith in God. Amen? Even though it doesn't make sense. That's the questioning of John the Baptist. And yet, Jesus promoted his ministry. I want you to look here. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 7. 
Well, let's get the rest of it here. Verse 24. And when the messengers from John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send before, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Did you get that? He said, he that's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Right? Now that's a scary statement in some circles. But the simple truth is we who are saved do not doubt the Savior. Because the Holy Spirit of God is living within us. And we cannot doubt the Savior. Amen. That's that's simply what's being spoken of there. And look who heard him. The people that heard him were the publicans. They justified God. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God and refused the baptism And Jesus gives a little parable. He says, what am I going to liken this generation to? And he uses the story of children in the marketplace. And the ultimate, well, let's just read this one. This is not a well-known parable. Verse 32, they are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, we have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath the devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Now, I wish we could take time and just really get into this, because this is one of the great problems of our day. Jesus was simply saying, no matter who, no matter whom God sends unto you, you're not going to receive him. John, he came from the wilderness. He said he's got to be possessed of the devil to live out in the wilderness and eat locust and wild honey. Jesus said the son of man talking about himself, He came eating and drinking a normal diet and and came from among men and they said, he's a gluttonous wine-bibber, he's a party animal, he just wants to go out and and, uh, uh, eat and drink with sinners and wicked people. Here's what Jesus said, but wisdom is justified of all of her children. John the Baptist was a child of wisdom, just as Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the same. The gospel was not meant to be added to your 
religious tradition. The gospel was meant to destroy your religious tradition that your faith might be in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. I'm telling you, I was just about ready to hit the dash. Only The only thing that would have happened was the radio might have broken and so might my hand. Uh, they were quoting the Pope uh, as he was leaving the Vatican saying, well, the church of Jesus Christ shall be without a voice for the next few months. And I'm sitting here going, no! Jesus' voice has always been there, always will be there, and he doesn't need some person pretending to be the voice of Jesus Christ. Oh, angers me. Sorry. That's not in the text, but the application is there. Amen? And the other part is, you will not be loved by your enemies. It's okay. I mean, I wish we could teach some people in Washington, D.C. that the goal of politics is not to be loved by your enemies. And I'm talking primarily about some uh, Republicans. Uh, You're not going to be loved by your enemies. Jesus said, no matter how God sends them, you men, you Pharisees are the enemy of God. He's going to He's going to get more and more strict with and, and, and rebuking the faithlessness of these Pharisees. He's saying it doesn't matter. If it comes from God, you guys are rejecting it because you don't believe in God. It won't matter. And, and we need to learn some things here. If you reject the truth... It doesn't matter how you paint it up. How many of you are old enough to remember the antibiotic pills that would just make your entire body shudder with nausea when you had to take them? Does anybody remember those? Uh, As a child, I do. Uh, And they always said, oh, just mix it with applesauce. That doesn't work. I mean, those pills tasted bad no matter what you did with them. And you know what? You cannot make the truth acceptable by painting it up. Uh, I'm sorry, Mary Poppins lied. A spoonful of sugar does not make the medicine go down. Uh, Doesn't work that way. A spoonful of sugar goes down, but the medicine still comes up. Talk to Jason. Try to get that boy to take a Dramamine before you go on a trip. Uh, I, I mean, it just doesn't work. And yet we have mainline Christian, Christianity today going right in the face of the teaching of Jesus and trying to get the world to approve of their religion. It's not going to work, my friend. The only reason... I can understand a person doing that is because they themselves don't have the truth, even though they talk about it. Now, it happens. 
Jesus said, there's going to be many that say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. Those are scary words. There's going to be many that claim to be saved. The goal of the Christian is to win the lost. Amen? You cannot win the lost until the lost are ready to give up their sin and their tradition. There must be a decision to leave one thing and embrace the other. And that's what Jesus is teaching, and we're going to see this rift between Jesus and the Pharisees grow and grow to the point to where all they can do is try to plot his destruction. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to pick up there. And Jesus pronounces judgment. Now, when you follow this thing through, it really connects here as Jesus is giving this parable of the children in the marketplace saying you're not going to receive the truth no matter what. Then you go to Matthew chapter 11 and we follow the story in Matthew's account. He gives us another piece of the puzzle we might say here. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazine! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyrus and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell, for if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Now, those are some hard, hard words. And someone said, well, why didn't Jesus do those mighty works so that Sodom could have repented? Well, the truth is, how many of you remember the story of Abraham with praying for Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, God, would you destroy it for 50? God said, of course not. And they worked all the way down. You ever wonder where that phrase, Jewing someone down, comes from? comes from the story of Abraham and God at the story. You think I'm making this up? No. People make things up compared to the Bible. But when, Moses, when Abraham got to 10, God said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And he left off communing. Because Jesus knew there were not 10 people in Sodom. This is a picture of God's foreknowledge and his ability to control events, and yet allow for the free will of man to choose to repent. I can't rectify the two. That's why I reject Calvinism. It's because Calvinism tries to reconcile all the points of God's authority with man's choice. God gave man a choice. 
He didn't program you to heaven or to hell. But he knows the choice that mankind will make because he's God. And that's all the farther I can go with it. But that understanding fits every category. You see, God will judge the rejecters of the truth. Amen? And he knows how much truth you are capable of rejecting. Just like he knows what it will take to get you to believe. And he will, some people hear the gospel hundreds of times before they surrender their soul to Jesus Christ. Others, as far as we know, never hear one clear presentation of the gospel in their entire life. How in the world does God reconcile that? He reconciles it with his knowledge of what mankind will do. And what our responsibility is to do and to serve him. I don't believe God will take a soul that would be saved and refuse to give them salvation. Amen? But on the other hand, there are more people in the history of mankind who will refuse salvation than will accept it. That's Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus begins with these Incredible judgments against these cities and actually says Capernaum is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah's sins were immorality and yet in the city of Capernaum they were face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked through the streets and did the miracles that he did and they still refused to believe. Whose is the greater sin? Jesus said, the sin of Capernaum was greater than the sin of Sodom. That tells us Jesus' most horrific judgments are not reserved for the people who live a life of wickedness, but for the people who think they're righteous and refuse the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. That'll change your understanding of religion and life now, won't it? And so as we go here, I want to finish this part before we quit tonight. Now look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemeth good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. How do you want to be revealed? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't it amazing that Jesus starts out with such harsh judgment against these cities? 
and ends with the plea, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. There was not a Jewish person that Jesus was speaking to that didn't understand that. Because if you were going to be a Jew in these days, guess what you had to do? You had to labor. The burdens were heavy. You see, the Romans believed in taxation. They would take anywhere from 15 to 20% of all income of the people they ruled, sometimes even more, and the tax collectors, how did they earn their money? By adding a surcharge to the taxes that the Romans collected. So easily, the average Jewish person, a third of their income was taken by the Romans. Now, they didn't live like you and I do. Uh, They were subsistence people. If you didn't get paid that day, you didn't eat that night. You you purchased the food uh, that your family ate, unless you were a fisherman like uh, Peter and James, I guess you could take some fish home with you. But how many of you would like to eat fish every day and every meal? I I think if there was anything that would get old quick. uh, I I mean, I love fresh fish, not for breakfast. Uh, If they were going to have any bread, they had to take their money and go buy it from the people. You didn't store a year's wheat in your basement because you didn't have a basement. Everything was done on a daily basis. So when the tax collector came, guess what? Oftentimes, your family went hungry that day to pay your taxes. Are you getting the picture here? If you followed the Old Testament law, you had to tithe. That's another 10%. But if you paid for the sacrifices, which were exorbitant in their prices and all of these things, you could easily be talking between the Romans and the temple, 60 to 70% of your earned income. Just so you could live without being murdered by the Romans and feel like you had obeyed the Old Testament law. Aren't you glad you live in a free country? Taxes are oppressive here, but they're nothing like what Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He said, I'll give you rest. How many of you know what a yoke is? I mean, a yoke is where they take two animals and literally bolt them together. If you do not have a match team in a yoke, the animals will pull against each other until one of them is dead. I'll tell you, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Get permanently attached to me. But let me do the pulling. Amen? 
because his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he bears it for us. Now Jesus was pronouncing judgment on those that refused. We look here, he starts out as we just picked this portion of the Gospels to go through, the great faith of the centurion, the great joy of the widow receiving her son back to life, and yet we have John's questioning of Jesus. Jesus' patience with John, and yet his judgment against those that refuse to believe. But the plea is still there. Come unto me. That's where you're going to find it. It's not in the temple. It's not in tradition. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just ask that you would Allow the Holy Spirit to help our minds keep track of the flow of the entire story here. Even though we're jumping around quite a bit between the four Gospels and we've had some interruptions in our study. But Lord, help us to just see the picture unfold. As you, through your birth, miraculous birth, the silent years your baptism and first year of ministry, and now as we study the second year, Lord, that you would just help our minds to be able to keep track of these things as they go. And Lord, let us be aware that those who've rejected the truth will not accept it because it comes in a different form. But they must be willing to turn aside from their tradition and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, let us never change our message. Though we may be discouraged as John was in prison, let us just faithfully serve you till you call us home. In your name we pray. And before we finish that prayer completely, I just give you opportunity to add some of your own.